Good morning. Good to see you all. Happy summer. It's almost over, but happy summer. I'm holding on as long as we possibly can to whatever this is. Uh, I don't know what your summer's been like. It's interesting because I think of summer as like a time to relax, a time to rest, a time to go away, to break up the pattern, and then you have a kid in the middle of summer. That's like the opposite of what my experience has been. I feel like I've been more busy and more and like just taken and more kind of stretched, but it's all good things. Like we're extremely excited that uh, Lennon is here. And so because I am preaching and because I have a microphone and because I have control over what you see on the screen, uh, this is my most recent picture of little Lennon Joy. So that's right. A, a obligatory awe has to just come out of you and you see that. But this is her hanging out on the front step the other night. Um, but it's fun because I think back to 10 weeks ago. So 10 weeks ago, I'm sitting, uh, or a little over 10 weeks ago, I'm sitting in a newborn class. And I'm sitting there with eyes wide open, ears wide open. I want to learn everything. It's my first time. I'm with like eight or, or maybe nine other couples who want to learn everything they know. And you can tell when you go to a newborn class, no one's had a kid before, else you wouldn't be there, right? You're like, I already got this figured out. I had the trial run. I'm going to do, do it my way for this time. But for the first time, we're like, I want to make sure I know how to keep this baby safe, at least be able to change her and feed her and figure out how to sleep at least a little bit even in the first couple months. And so we're sitting there and we started the class. All of us are nervous because none of us know what we're doing. We're sitting there and uh, the instructor is very kind, very gentle. And she says, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go around the class and we're going to share two things. Number one, your name, or three things, your name, uh, uh, what you're most excited for about the class, and then how many diapers you've changed. And I said, no problem, I got this. Like, those are the easiest questions I've ever been asked. I, I work for a church, okay? You think I don't get hard questions every week? Like, that seems really easy. So we go around, first couple, second couple, it's all pretty much the same, right? Here's our name. Uh, we kind of want to learn how to help our baby sleep better. We want to learn cues, or we want to learn how to change a diaper, whatever. And then they get to the question of diaper changing. And they're like, well, the couple ahead of us said, I don't know, maybe two or three. Uh, the other one said, I I've done a couple. I just babysat for a little while. Or, or then it gets to Lindsay and I. And Lindsay says, I've changed a couple. Like I'm, I've babysat when I was in high school and things like that. And then the instructor turns to me. And she's like, okay, what's your name? I'm like, John, what are you excited to learn about how to get some sleep with a baby? Ha ha ha, we all laugh. And then she's like, how many diapers have you changed? And I was like, uh, 0.5? <laughs> like, I don't know. I, if I have, it's by total accident. Like, I was just in the room, and someone pulled me over there to help them. But I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever changed any diapers. And so everyone kind of laughed, and we moved on. The next couple after us, I don't even remember their names because I'm just so angry at them because her answer just drove me crazy. She gets to the, the, the young couple right in front of us, and she says, how many diapers have you changed? And I don't know if she was from Brit like from England, but I'm going to act like she was because she was like so just uppity about it and literally said, she's like, I've changed thousands of diapers. <laughs> and I was like, you are my worst enemy right now. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I just hate that. Like, there was something internal within me. I was like, oh, come on. Like, why are you even in this class? You changed thousands of diapers. But right at the beginning of that class, essentially the instructor, and if you've been to one, you remember this, she says, really the goal it is for you to lead this class at least somewhat equipped to have kind of a safe newborn experience. We want to make sure you can change diapers. You can at least figure out how to do a swaddle, uh, how not to get your hand caught in a Velcro swaddle, how to like make sure that you can um, take care of your baby when, baby when it comes to feeding, whether it's formula, breastfeeding, whatever. 
And so I would say in general, even though that class is kind of like drinking from a fire hose, like three hours later, I felt like I'm a little bit more equipped to have a safe baby experience. I, I was at least a fractionally, I was fractionally more like aware of what I needed to do. And, and for the last 10 weeks, we've been pretty efficient at feeding her, of clothing her, of making sure she can sleep, making sure she didn't sit in a dirty diaper for 10 hours or anything like that. Like figured out the car seat, it's all locked in with a 70 point safety strap. Like everything's good on that end. But it's interesting because as we look at parenting from the lens of scripture, from the lens of Jesus, the goal of parenting, the goal of family is not just safety or protection, even though that's important. The goal is actually developing and parenting towards a Jesus-centered family. Way harder, right? Way harder. I mean, it's so easy if you think about it in that context to change diapers, to feed with a bottle or make sure things are happening well and that the baby is relatively safe. But the goal, if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you're not, you still learn some things, but if you're a follower of Jesus, ultimately our goal is towards a Jesus-centered family. Here's the problem. If you're a parent or you've had parents, which is all of us, the problem is kids can, I'm not saying they always do, but kids can magnify and for some of us become idols in our lives. And by idol, I just mean anything that takes the place of God in your family. I don't mean that you literally have like a pole erected in your house that you worship your kids at. Like, that would be very weird, and we're probably not the church for you, because I don't even know what to do with that. But, but kids can become, they can magnify. They have a way of just glorifying. I was literally having a conversation right before church and just talking about the ways that, that kids end up like showing you things about yourself that, that are not always super pretty. But they can magnify, and at some point, they can become an idol for us. And that's an enormous barrier to having a Jesus-centered family. And it's funny, because... Uh, what I've noticed over these last 10 weeks is that our kids actually have a way of raising us. Like I thought I got into this to raise a child, to raise Lennon, uh, but at the end of the day, there's something happening in me that's much greater than just being able to make sure her diaper is clean. Like our, our kids have a way of raising us up. And over the next couple of weeks, we're just committed to, to look at the scriptures, to open them up, and then to explore how are the different ways we sometimes get drawn into idolatry when it comes to parenting or working through how to be a Jesus-centered family? You're going to hear from different voices over these next couple weeks, people with kids, people with young kids, people with teenagers, people without kids. And so this will hit every single one of us, especially because all of us, whether it's just us in the home or we've got people around us, have responsibility when it comes to family. Now, it would be really difficult if you and I decided we are going to, to start the journey or at least work towards the journey of becoming a Jesus-centered family and had zero help. But luckily, that's not the case. Luckily, there are families and letters and stories and narratives throughout the, the whole scripture that actually want to teach us about how to do family well. And here's what I know. August is a critical time for these conversations. Why? Because we're going back into fall. We're going back into school. We're going back into routine. Some of you are not working from home anymore. You're going back. Like there's a lot of things that are kicking back off in just the next couple of weeks. And so the pressure is going to be on you as a parent to, to figure this out. But luckily, you're not alone. And if I look at uh, just New Testament, as I look at different letters, one of the letters that jumps out to me when it comes to families, Colossians. 
Colossians is one of my favorite books of the Bible for a lot of different reasons. But number one, Colossians is split up super clearly. Now, I'm, I'm not a brilliant student of Scripture. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a, I don't speak Greek. I don't know any Hebrew, really. But as I look at the Scriptures, what I always look for is what is clear. How can I find something that's clear? And Colossians is really clear. It's literally the first half is all about identity in Christ. And the second half is how do you apply your identity in Christ to your actual life? to your real, everyday, living, breathing, working, playing, parenting life. And so what I want to do is take you to Colossians 3. And in Colossians 3, if you have a Bible or a phone to pull it out, some of this will be on the screen, some of it won't be. But in Colossians 3, verse 1 to 17, literally, Paul spends the bulk of his time in this chapter trying to remind the Colossian church of their identity in Christ, of where they are seated, is the language that Paul uses. And it's interesting because you'd think that in Paul's letters, you'd get right to practical, right? And that's how I'm wired. I want to go right to the steps. Like if I'm ever reading a blog and it's not bullet points or numbers, I'm not reading it. (laughs) Like, sorry, man, I'm just not interested. Like, give me the outcomes. I want to apply this and do something with it. And some of you are wired much more intellectually. You want to actually have kind of the background or the framework for this. And that's he's doing both and in chapter 3. The full first 17 verses is all about this new humanity, this new family that God is creating. And he's writing to this Colossian church about it. And then the last couple of verses of the chapter are what we're going to dig into today, just about how to apply that new humanity, apply those new kingdom family dynamics in our lives. What's interesting about Colossians, though, is it was written under really interesting circumstances. In fact, multiple letters in the New Testament were written while Paul, this apostle, this literally terrorist-turned-Christian leader, is writing these in prison. He's sitting there with chains on, likely just the ability to scribble out some notes and pass them out or pass them along to someone who would take them miles and miles away from the prison to distribute. One of these letters gets to Epaphras, this this young Christian leader who had surrendered his life to Jesus, had been baptized and then planted this church in the city of Colossae. Colossae was a Roman city. And what's interesting, you can read through this actual letter in Colossians and find out the Colossian church was actually doing a lot of things right. They were doing really well. I mean, Paul writes some scathing letters to churches in the New Testament. You, You maybe read those if you've been around the Bible at all. But in this one, he's much more encouraging. The tone is much more positive. And so why would he write to the Colossians? Well, they're doing well, but they were facing enormous cultural pressures to conform to worship Caesar, to parent the way that Romans did, to to spend money the way the Romans did, but they had surrendered their lives to Christ. Their image was in Christ. Their identity was in him, which started to change and shift everything else. So can I give you the truth right up front? This is what Paul is saying in this letter. How do you become a perfect parent? Like, how do you move away from all of the idols we tend to lift up, even with our parenting journey? How do you become a perfect parent? Here's the simple key. We embrace together, I am God's child first and their parent second. If you look at your own story, if you look at your own family, if, you, if you're a parent in a room, you look at your own parenting journey, one of the biggest struggles and barriers to living out this parenting journey and, and making it about Jesus is we tend to flip those. I'm their parent first and God's child second. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. If you want to have a Jesus-centered family, you make sure you fight tooth and nail 
every single day you wake up to make sure you are reminded and embracing the reality you are God's child first and their parent second. You are not defined by your parenting journey. You are not defined by how well your kids do in school or sports or whatever. You're actually defined by your very identity in God himself. And he's writing this to Romans. Romans, the family structure in Rome and subsequently in all the other areas that Rome occupied was the father. Literally, you can read Roman documents, which is super nerdy, but I have. Like Roman documents that literally would say the father, the patriarch, holds the power of life and death for his family. In Roman society, if you're a husband, you can cheat on your wife 15 different times. She cheats on you once. You have the ability legally to not only divorce her, but maybe even prosecute and and eventually kill her. You hold the power of life and death. It was an incredibly broken system and broken structure. Your children are not viewed as beautiful blessings. Like our daughter's Lennon Joy, and that's what she does. She's a blessing to us. She brings joy every time she smiles at me. I don't care if she like pooped all over my arm. I'm just like, you're so cute. Oh yeah, like you're so cute though. Like it's an incredible way. Like it's a blessing. In Roman society, that's not how it was. Children were literally viewed like your lawnmower. There's property. Sometimes I got to fix them. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes they're just there. If I want to use them for my own political benefit or family benefit, I will, but they're just property. They're essentially no higher than in that system, an employee of your household. They were just objects, just property. And what Jesus is doing in the words of Paul through this letter to the Colossian church is saying, hey, I am reshaping. I I am changing the very basic human relationships. I am in the business of transforming families. And that's one of the tensions. And so let's read starting in verse 18. So chapter 3, verse 18, here's what we discover. And he's writing really practically. Here's essentially a list from Paul. Number one, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, or the Greek really is parent unit. Parent unit, do not embitter your children or they will be discouraged. He goes on to talk about slaves and masters, this unique relationship in the ancient world. We're not going to get into all of that in this series, but he's essentially addressing wives, husbands, children, and then the parenting unit. If you have two parents, how they're supposed to interact. But that's one of the tensions even the Colossians face. I mean, it's so easy, just like us, to have to pursue a Jesus-centered family, but you can't do that if you let idols live in your house. If you let things live in your house and work in your relationships. And so he goes through them. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, if you grew up in a super fundamental, hardcore background, you're like, yes, that's my favorite verse. Like, wife, you need to submit to me. But if you read the breadth of Paul's letters over and over again, specifically in Ephesians, he, he just can't stop saying it. It's like, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's like all over the place. So it's mutual submission. But in the Colossian church, in the Roman society, if you were oppressed and you were literally viewed as an object, wouldn't it be difficult to submit to someone like that? Wouldn't it be difficult to respect and a sacrifice for a guy like that? Like, you'd have no reason to do that. And Paul is saying, but in the kingdom of God, in my family unit, Even if you feel like you're being taken advantage of, you still, you lay down your own life. You submit to your husband in that way. And then he goes on to say, husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. 
Well, if you're a husband in Roman culture, specifically in the city of Colossae, you'd be used to putting down your wife. You'd be used to viewing her as an object, viewing her as property. And Paul is saying, not, that's not how it goes in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we love our wives. We actually love, baked into that word, is self-sacrifice. We, we literally modeled the very example of Jesus who was crucified, sacrificed for us. We love our wives, and we're not harsh with them. Our words, our tone in our homes is not one that spits venom at our wives. It's actually one that blesses and brings joy and builds them up. That's true in our culture now. I mean, how many marriages do you know where everything is nice and neatly boxed, but you know when they get home, the language, the tone, the venom that gets spewed back and forth is fatal. It's destructive. There's marriages who, who have disintegrated just because of words. And Paul is saying that's not how we do it in the family of God. That's not how we do it in the kingdom. And then he says children. Again, if you're viewed as an object, let's just say you're 12 years old. I don't have a 12-year-old. I'm on track to have a 12-year-old. I'm scared of having a 12-year-old with the emotions of my daughter, even in 10 weeks. I'm horrified. I don't know how it's going to work, but it's going to work. But if you're 12 years old, you're in a Roman culture, you're in a Roman household, your dad as the patriarch holding the power of life and death views you as an object, as property, doesn't care for you, love you, doesn't speak encouragement to you, doesn't build you up, would it be easy to obey them? No, not at all. It would be awful. Like some of you have a boss that you don't respect, you don't like, you don't, you don't love them, certainly. It's really hard to do what they say sometimes. This is what Paul is saying. But he's saying that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. Like the same spirit that is at work in adults, at work in parents, is at work in you. That means that as a child, you don't push back against your parents. You don't act like you know everything or you've got life figured out. You actually humbly and willingly obey them. You say, as long as I'm under your roof, you get to tell me what to do. That's just how it works. They're, they obey their parents. And, and Paul's saying, in that, it pleases the Lord. Like when children obey their parents, when they respectfully and humbly submit to their parent as God-given authority in their lives, it actually blesses the heart of the father. And then in verse 21, parents, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. You know how hard it is to be a kid or a teenager in 2021? Like I look at my teenage years, they feel infinitely easier than some of the things that other teenagers today are having to walk through. And even in that, I could just see like the spirit of discouragement would be so easy to succumb to, so easy to just feel like you're never getting ahead. Your life doesn't have purpose. And Paul is instructing, if you're a parent, don't embitter, don't make it harder for your kids to flourish in Christ. Don't make it harder for them to have priorities, to put first things first. Don't let them be discouraged. Like your role sometimes is just to be the chief encouragement officer for your kids. I believe in you. I'm proud of you. I love you. Hey, you didn't make the team. That doesn't make you less of a person. Hey, you failed that test. Let's do something else. Let's try something else. It's not to become discouraged and let them float away into the, the abyss of our culture. Here's what I know, though. There are so many different types of parents when it comes to idolatry. And that's what's interesting. Over these next couple of weeks, we're actually going to look at four different types of parents. I'm going to rapid fire them off to you. And, and some of them are going to sting because you're going to see yourself on these four, but we're not even going to touch it. You got to come back to get, to get the solution. Uh, here are four different types of parents. Here's what we're going to talk through over these next couple of weeks. 
Number one, some of us are the lawnmower parent. The lawnmower parent clears everything in their kid's path. They have no struggles, no adversity, no trials, and make sure they have a clear path, which is its own sort of idolatry. Number two, the dry cleaner parent. <laughs> this is my favorite one. They drop the child off to professionals to get them figured out, right? Which is not a knock on counseling, but, but you know this and I know this. Like drop them off at youth group, they'll figure out their problems. Drop them off at school, they'll figure out their problems. Drop them off at dance or, or lacrosse, they'll, the coach will figure out their problems, which is its own sort of idolatry. Number three, the best friend parent. Some of you struggle with this. Some of you have, have walked through the pain of this not going well. The best friend parent relates as a best friend rather than a parent. Now, it's not wrong to be friends to your parents, but if that's your primary relationship to them, a lot of things can get out of whack. And the fourth one, as some of, some of you are walking through this, some of you have been on the receiving end of this, is the volcano parent right? The, the unprocessed wounds and messages from their childhood kind of bubbles up over time. And eventually something happens where it's boom, like all bets are off. The parent flies off the handle. There's anger, there's rage. There's a, a kind of insane overreaction to things taking place, whether it's in the home or on the car drive on the way back from school. We're going to talk about all of those because all of us either grew up with one of them or we are one of them. And look at how do we get Jesus centered in the midst of that. But here's what I know. Best, the best parents I know, this is my own story too. I had a, a great set of parents growing up, but the best parents I know lead out of their relationship with Jesus. They, they remember and hold on to the fact that they are God's child first and their parent second. It's just the way it works. If you look at the story of scripture, it's the same thing. Like Israel was given 10 commandments. What are the, some of the first commandments? They're all about putting God's name, putting his, his kingship, his authority first in their home. It was to say, don't have any other idols. Now, I don't think God gave Israel commandments because he's selfish or feels threatened by the idols of our lives. I believe God is supreme. He's the authority. He's sovereign. He's the ruler of the universe. I don't think he's scared when I've got idols in my life, but I think he loves us enough. He loved Israel enough to say, if you'll orient your life around me, if you'll truly make Jesus the center of your home, which is not super easy to do, but if you work to do that, you will become the perfect parent. You will become the parent that your children desperately Need. I want to take you back to the very beginning of this chapter. We didn't read it yet, but in verse 1, right at the top of chapter 3, this is what Paul says, and I think this is a helpful reminder. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. That's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life, your real life, is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. I love that line in the New Living Translation, your real life, not the life you think you need to have, not the parenting journey you think you have or want to have, but your actual real life. Like I said, I had great parents, but that's not because they memorized all the right books because they always took me to Red Lobster when I wanted to go to Red Lobster, <laughs> or, or they always let me stay out late when I asked or anything like that. I really look back now as a 30-year-old person, I look back and I think, I think the reason that my experience as a child was the way it was, because their relationship to me is the way it is right now, because they embrace the truth that they are God's children first 
and, and my parents, second, that they had put their relationship with Christ over and above their parenting journey. Leadership writer, researcher John Maxwell says this, and I added something to it, but I think it's still true. He says, as leaders, and I put in, in our home, as leaders in our home, we teach what we know, but we reproduce what we are. You can read a thousand parenting books, but at the end of the day, your kid is going to become like you. Now, that is awfully scary for me right now because I'm learning a lot in these first 10 weeks. But I'm, it's also encouraging because if you are committed to the process of forming your life around Christ, at the end of the day, whether you did everything right or not, what they're going to take away is a rich and dynamic relationship with Jesus. And if you're a parent in the room and you've had kids walk away, whether it's from church or faith or you as a family, I hope that encourages you a little. Like when Proverbs says, train up a child in the way you should go and he won't depart from it, I think there's going to be moments where they depart. There's going to be moments where they walk away. But, but if you're committed to training your life and, and orienting your home around Jesus, I think in the back of their mind, I don't know when or how, and I can't promise this in your situation, but I think there's something deeper that they can pull back from, they can pull from. Now, all this sounds awesome. All this sounds great. I'm sitting here even nodding my own head. Like, I need this message. I need to hear it. I need this reminder. That sounds awesome. But what about when your daughter slams the door in your face? <laughs> like, let's get real for a moment. What about when your son gets caught sexting in school? What about when your wife never affirms you or encourages you as a dad? What about when your husband will not stop drinking or not stop playing video games or not stop going out and staying out? What if your parents don't talk to you? What if you're parenting alone? Like a third of Kent County kids right now have one parent. What if you're in that? Like what if you're trying to figure out how do I parent by myself? To be honest, looking at this conversation, sometimes it's just easier to neglect that Jesus-centered part of it. To just say, you know what, I'm not going to make it a priority. My kids don't want to talk about spiritual things. Or I don't even know how to like bring up the Bible or prayer in the car ride to school or at dinner time. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. Sometimes it's easier to ignore. And in my very, very limited, tiny, small experience of being a parent compared to so many of you, I felt that too. And I thought about it. I was like, what, what's a picture to describe how sometimes parenting can be? Uh, literally, I thought of this picture. I saw it from Obama's presidency. This is what I think parenting sometimes can feel like. <laughs> like, everything is going great. You're having a great adult conversation over here. Your kids are just knocked out or asleep or doing something they're not supposed to do. Like, that's sometimes how I feel. And, and maybe you feel that way. But here's the invitation to all of us. It's to slow down long enough to rest and to recognize you are God's child first and their parent second. God's child first, their parent second. Here's what's where it gets real. Because as you work through those different examples, some, some of us have felt some of those, even this last week, maybe this weekend, maybe on the way here. And if I'm like incredibly honest, like as your pastor, I don't get this right all the time either. Parenting is way harder than any of you told it told me it was gonna be. Okay, like it's just so much more challenging, it's so much more emotional. It, it hits things deep inside of you. I'd even say these last couple of weeks for Lindsay and I have been the hardest weeks, maybe of our marriage, but definitely of our parenting journey. There's some days it was dark. It was not super fun to be a parent in those moments. And I kept looking every time I changed Lennon, because I can't feed her, but I can change her. 
So that's my thing. Like, let me on it. I smell a diaper. I'm in. I'm in. I'm like, tag me in. I'll do this. But every time I was changing her the last couple weeks, I kept looking for the return tag, like on her back. They said it was there. It's clearly not. Sorry, that was a bad joke. But I'm a, I'm a dad now. I'm a dad. So I can make those jokes and you all have to appease me. Got other things on my mind, right? Can't be focused on humor. And I think about that and I just... Again, even for me, even for John and even for Lindsay, the reminder over and over again from the Holy Spirit was just, are you putting first things first? Are you being my child first? Are you embracing that God-given identity? Are you allowing that to transform how you parent? Are you making it all about her and making it all about the kids and how they respond and how they do this and how they do that? And there were some moments I was like, I I am. Like, it's not a bad thing to love your daughter, but if you make her an idol, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be let down and frustrated. But the goal is not to be a perfect parent. The goal is to be a Jesus-centered family, and and that will make you and I become perfect parents. Here's the thing. If you're bought in on this, you want to become a perfect parent, you're like, all right, we're coming every single Sunday, the next couple Sundays. Like, we're canceling the vacation. We're coming back for Volcano Parent or whatever it is. Like, you want to come back for, for this series, and I would encourage you to do that. Here's what I'm going to say. All of us are going to be tempted to walk out of this room and say, okay, I want to be a better parent. You're getting on Amazon. You're scrolling through the parenting books. You're trying out new sleep training. You're trying to feed her different food, or they're going vegan for the week or whatever. Like, you're walking through all these different things. They're all tactics and, and tricks to make it work. But that's not how we do this, because that's how God is changing my thinking, even right now in this moment. The, the, the way you do that, the way you move towards a Jesus and her family is by embracing that reality. God's child first, their parents second. John and Lindsay are God's children first. He is our father. He is the ultimate parent who will not fail, who will not let me down, who will always provide, who will always pick me up when I'm hurting. Even when I don't want to always pick up Lennon when she's crying, right? But, but God has more love and more patience than that. He'll pick me up when I'm crying, and I'm Lennon's parent second. And when I get those in the right order, I just think it starts to work differently. This is true in Jesus' life. Right here, I think one of the most beautiful verses in the entire narrative of Scripture is in Matthew 3. It's right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Some of you remember this. Jesus gets incarnated, through Mary. It's this bizarre mystery, this incredible work of God gives birth through human form, and Jesus takes on what John calls skin and bones. He actually becomes one of us, not just like an abstract form of the human body, but actually a human being who, who's hungry and who feels and experiences what we do. And you read through the Gospels, and you're like, yeah, but Jesus is somehow superhuman too. Like, I don't walk on water. When my kids are hungry, I can't make 10 Burger King meals out of one. Like, that's not even possible for me. I can't do that. And he does all these miracles, these incredible teachings. He's sent to the cross, but then is raised by the Father from the grave. But before Jesus does any of that, Jesus gets baptized, and then the the heavens open up. And look at what God the Father says to Jesus before he's ever accomplished one thing. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know what that means for you as a parent? That means... That on your very worst day of parenting, God looks at you as a son or daughter and says, you did a good job. I'm well pleased with you. You don't have to accomplish your value as a parent, your value as a follower of Jesus, your value as as an image bearer of Jesus 
does not fluctuate based on the day you had. It doesn't fluctuate based on the sales you made. It doesn't fluctuate based on the fact that you felt like you did a good job parenting that day. It is based on the fact that your real life as a Jesus follower, as a surrendered person, is in God, and it's fixed. One of my counselors over the years has used this analogy with me that's so helpful, and I've said this to so many of you before. One of the most helpful analogies for me when it comes to this, and I've thought about this a lot, has this been a hard couple weeks of being a parent? He says, John, is a gold bar any more valuable in Fort Knox, stacked up with a bunch of other gold bars, protected by military personnel and codes and and security cameras and, and lasers and everything? Like, is all of that, is it more valuable there or is it, is it less valuable in your toilet? Is a gold bar any more valuable in Fort Knox than it is if it got tossed in your toilet? Now, that takes me a while because I'm not super smart. I'm like, wait, uh, maybe? I'm, I'm not sure. It depends what's in the toilet. I'm not, I don't know. Like, you help me. I don't know. But the answer is no. The value is fixed. The, the worth is the same. And whether or not you feel like a great parent today, whether or not you start this series feeling like you've got it figured out or you got all the tricks nailed down, the reminder is to you, God's child first. God's child first. God's child first. Parent second. And so what I want to do is just offer to pray because I know, I mean, just based on stories, chances we've had, diff- different, different members of you, different families, that parenting can be really, really hard. And even if you're an adult and you don't have kids yet or you're, you're a student, you don't have kids yet, you may have a kind of complex, messy relationship with your dad or your mom. Maybe there's some abuse there. Maybe some neglect there. Maybe there's some, some hurt and some bitterness, some anger. And I believe wherever you come at this, God wants to just remind you today, whether you're, you're a recipient of parenting or you're in that process, you're God's child first. And so I'm going to pray. And I invite you just to close your eyes as a way to focus. We're going to worship together. As I pray, though, if you know, hey, I'm, I'm in this boat. I'm with you, John. I need, I need that reminder from the voice of God. I need that reminder from heaven that I am God's child. And parenting may be really difficult, but I want a reminder of my identity today. If that's you, would you just quietly in, the, in this moment slip up your hand? I want to pray directly for you as we go into this moment together. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Jesus, I thank you for just your committedness, your, your faithfulness to work. When we open up our hearts to you, when we quiet down long enough to let you speak. Because you always are speaking but we are not always listening. And so today we just take a moment in this moment and we pause and we listen. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that we are not in this journey alone. That we're not raising kids. That kids have a way of raising us. And even in that process, you want to be our father. And for some of us, a father we never had. You want to be the faithful, steady presence, the loving, compassionate, the truth-bringing, the justice-seeking father to us, the parent that sometimes we struggle, actually most of the time we struggle to be. So we just bring those journeys before you. We ask over these next four weeks, God, would you give us wisdom and discernment from you? Because some of us are facing difficulties and challenges. Those people that raise their hand, they're facing situations that if we're honest long enough, we would just say they're just too big for us outside of our wheelhouse, don't, ha- don't know how to read a book for this. 
And so we bring it before you, Lord. We surrender this to you. We surrender our relationships, our families. Would you help us over these next couple weeks to center our families and our homes around you? Not a vacation or a sports team or a grade, but you. 